and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Nice to see you. Hey, Eric. Nice to see you. And this week, we have a double interview, double feature, because mm. it's two films that we're speaking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so first we have my interview with the debut director and filmmaker, Dee Smith, about her recent documentary, which is called Kokomo City. And that documentary looks at the lives of several Black trans women who are also sex workers. And there are so many things to really love and think about in this documentary. But one of the things that I found myself thinking about in the days after my conversation with Dee was the kind of project to normalize transgender existence, right? So like a lot of the documentary is about how the quote unquote, like abnormality or the animus against trans people, particularly black trans women, not only creates everyday situations of violence in which those women have to live and try to survive, but also like prevents trans women, particularly those on the margins from like living and flourishing in the kind of lives that they should be living and flourishing in. So, you know, there was just so much to think about and to kind of ruminate over in that documentary. And the documentary is also very aesthetically beautiful. So there's many, many things to appreciate. And, you know, that was all part of my conversation with Dee, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Great. Yeah. And then following that, we have a conversation I had with the documentarian and also fiction filmmaker, Claire Simon, who's Mm. French, whose new film is called Our Body. It's a documentary. And it's set in a gynecological ward of a public hospital in Paris. And it just takes us through every stage of a woman's life and every thing that, you know, she could possibly need to go to the doctor for. So there's abortion, there are people who are transitioning genders, there's people who have endometriosis and cancer. And, you know, speaking of normalizing, it kind of does make these things seem more commonplace because we're staying so close with so many people. And that's the, where we are the whole time. We're just in this realm of, of doctors and bodies. And I was thinking of it, pairing it with your interview with D just kind of about bodily autonomy, but then also interconnectedness mm-hmm. and women's bodies and contested bodies. But then, you know, this is a place in this hospital where they're very normalized because doctors are dealing with them every day. And so it's the things that might come up outside of the hospital, you know, around rules and regulations aren't present in the same way. So it's strangely a hospital I don't think of as such a a free space, right? Um, but it seems very enlightened uh, in this film, strangely enough. And uh, I was very moved in this film. It's incredible. And both of them come out this week. So All right, fantastic. I can't wait to listen to your interview and for our listeners to be able to not only hear these conversations, but see these great films in theaters. Wonderful. Let's get to it. Let's do it. I'm thrilled to have multi-hyphenate talent Dee Smith with me on the line today. 
Dee is a two-time Grammy-nominated producer, singer, and songwriter who has worked with artists including Katy Perry, Andre 3000, Monica, LA's own Nipsey Hussle, RIP, and Billy Porter. But those big-name projects were the realization of a life that included significant struggle before the A-list names. After coming out to her father as a teen, Dee found herself homeless and was taken in by a friend. Like so many, she decamped to New York, where she was discovered singing in the subway and was offered a publishing deal by Sony ATV's A&R. Yet when Dee came out publicly as trans in 2014, that hard-fought career suddenly seemed stopped in its tracks as folks stopped calling her up to collaborate on new projects. So Dee pivoted to a new medium, reality TV, joining the cast of Love & Hip Hop Atlanta, where she was the first trans woman cast on a primetime unscripted TV show. Wanting to show the everyday side of trans lives for mainstream viewers, the experience didn't go as Dee wished, and she ended up playing an unrecognizable, conflict-seeking version of herself in front of the cameras. But from all of that pain and misdirection and the stops and starts, Dee Smith has reinvented herself once again and joins me today to talk about her directorial debut with the documentary Kokomo City. Kokomo City leans heavily into a black and white art house aesthetic to tell the stories of four black transgender sex workers living in Atlanta and New York. As we hear the stories of Daniela Carter, Coco Dadal, Leah Mitchell, and Dominique Silver, alongside several male counterparts and others interviewed for the project, Kokomo City provides an intimate look at the lives, struggles, and dreams of these sex workers as they work to forge a future for themselves and navigate their fraught position in Black culture and community. Thanks so much for joining me, Dee. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Wow, that sounds like a fantastic movie. I would love to watch. I was literally going to say that, like when I'm like discovered, you know, by Sony ATV on the subway. You you sold it. It's your voice, how you delivered it. Wow. I can't wait to watch. (laughs) But no, thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. I went through a lot of your bio at the top because I think so much of the struggle of the women that you're profiling in Kokomo City is also your struggle. You know, now you haven't, as far as I know, ever worked as a sex worker, but you've experienced a lot of the other things, right? So the homelessness, the struggle to get work simply because you want to live your truth, the struggle to maintain bonds with family and friends just because you want to live your truth. So with that as a kind of opening, I wanted to ask if you can talk about what you wanted to say with this film. I wanted to say what's been said already, but I want to say it differently. You know, it's like we have all of these rules and regulations on how to talk to a trans woman instruction book. And, you know, these fortresses that have been built around us in the last 10 years is kind of really dehumanizing, to be honest with you. Obviously, we all want to be safe. We want to be seen and heard, obviously. But some of these things that are being placed around trans women, oftentimes, you know, pin us against one another. And I wanted to just kind of break the ice and form a new layer of talking points, like just reality and have the women to kind of start this new revelation and revolution of telling our stories, just being completely transparent, honest and empowered and open. And I think that 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 openness and that honesty is what works so well in the film, because a lot of what you're talking about and what your subjects are talking about is breaking down the walls of shame, which is shame is about silence. And that's as true for like 
gay people, it's true in different ways, but for gay people, for trans people, for anybody who is not like that kind of white heterosexual male ideal for whom the wheels in this country are greased eternally. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how you kind of met these women and what shooting with them on the project was like. I met most of them through like social media. What I initially did was I I would go to some of the more celebrity trans women and I would go through their comments and I would find like the girls that were just in the comments. I wanted that really, really, you know, we're living that life in the world without the protection of a PR rep or an agency or a glam squad. I wanted the girls that really represent the girls that are being killed and murdered. And I came across some stars in the process. Daniela, who's just a word genius, obviously, she had did like three TED Talks. I had never heard of her before then, but someone introduced us. We had a mutual friend and I was completely blown away with her gift. I just thought, how amazing would it be if she's positioned in a more humanized, tangible way without the Gucci shoes and the Fendi belt on the stage in front of, it's just not the easiest thing to for the rest of the community, like Black people or the world to say, okay, let me listen to see what this beautiful trans woman look, you know, has to say. When the truth of the matter is, Daniela's story was very tough. It was, I don't say a facade, like she was fake, but it was like the presentation and got to look perfectly and well put and like nothing's wrong. That's very misleading for trans women to do. So I wanted to do this and make trans women know that it's okay to be seen and heard in your true transgender self. I want to return to something that you said a little bit earlier, and it gets into this kind of the the real human being versus the like, in some ways we're talking about the social media facade, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I'm sure, like the kind of realness or passability presentation, which is also its own sometimes kind of performance. What's the dichotomy between how trans women, and let's talk specifically also about Black trans women, how they get portrayed in the media or how they have to portray themselves in the media versus like the opportunity of something like Kokomo City to tell a more unguarded and honest account of lives that are at once beautiful, ecstatic, incredible, but also extremely difficult, complicated, you know, like shot through with all kinds of ambiguity or difference, sometimes even incoherence, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? A lot of times with trans women, just in general, we're for some reason kind of like expected to be these beauty queens and these pageant queens, even the way we talk and our hair and nails and makeup are just expected to just be done, you know, and all the time and just perfect. And I think we've kind of like, even as a society, kind of like created this level of what a woman, that statue should look like. And even having a social status that says, I've made it, I am successful. This is what a woman should look like when you're a woman, or this is what a real woman looks like. Her body looks like this, her breast looks like this, her her shoes got to look like this. And all of these expectations that trans women can't even keep up with, like, or most women can't keep up with. But for some reason, trans women are scrutinized because, you know, the more less passable we are, the less feminine we look or the more obvious we look like trans women, the least we are women to society. It's like, see, look at that. See, you can tell if you look really, 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 really close, you can almost see her Adam's apple. If you look really good, it's like 
you know, we're scrutinized because it's like, well, if you want to be a woman, this is what a woman looks like. You want to be Kim K. You want to be, you know, this is what a woman looks like. And we can't look like regular women. We have to go all the way to the top to look like the most beautiful woman. So a lot of times trans women go into society thinking that this is reality. And doing Kokomo City really showed, you know what? I'm going to strip these women away from all of those expectations and those stigmas, right? We're not going to have a glam squad. We're not going to have makeup. We're not going to have the fancy lights. And they kind of gag, but it turned them on in sense of like, wow, this is actually something real. This actually feels good. I can actually thrive and be myself and say what I feel and say it how I want to say it. And that's exactly what Kokomo City was created to do because it's like you want to tell a message, but sometimes how that messenger looks really turns people off. So Daniela could speak in front of 300, 400 people at TED Talks, but who is it really, 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 really reaching if she's positioned in a way that doesn't feel like her story? It's like, you're sad, but you're wearing this and you're wearing that. So I said, let's not have any distractions and let's get to it and let people really allow people to really just engage in what is being said and not what's being worn. I mean, Daniela is all of the women that you profile have incredible stories, but Daniela, I think, is the most like electric. I mean, and just like there's that scene where you're filming her. It's also, you know, we're talking also about like how beauty is a problem and like the expectations are a problem, but there is like a very aesthetically beautiful scene in which you are interviewing her and she's in her bathtub. And it's, a very at-home scene, it's unguarded. And what she says in the segments pulled from that interview is so profound and really did like haunt me after I you know, was done watching the film, thinking about, so she's talking about a lot of different things. One, she talks about how Black trans women are facing the kind of self-policing and respectability politics of the Black community in a particularly heated way. And that that's specifically the thing. There's like this very ecstatic moment where she's like, that's what I want to break entirely away from. Everybody else is concerned about what everybody else is doing and policing everybody else. And I'm done with that. Like that is, that's not the way that we get to revolution. I'm curious if like, was it really in those moments that you're able to get that kind of encounter that wouldn't be, that sounds in some ways actually like it would be perfect for a TED Talk, but is maybe not the kind of thing that would come out of a TED Talk because of all the things you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, listen, there's nothing more comfortable than sitting at home with the doors locked and the TV on the volume that you're comfortable with, the air conditioner, the perfect temperature, what you want to wear, and you're talking with your best friend. Please say, tell me what's more gratifying and more comfortable than that. Nothing, you know, and I wanted to create that space. I, that particular scene, me and Daniela hung out quite a bit that day. Like we really warmed up to that moment. We had filmed earlier, but then we went and got sushi and we got drinks. We maybe had two or three drinks and three or four drinks. And it was so fun. Like the guards, listen, at that point, we were like just friends. And I just accept, I'm going to pull the camera out while we're laughing and talking. And because I edited it, this film as well, it was very easy for me to kind of like film her and question her in the sense of like, I'm going to edit it this way. So let me come at her this way. But I wanted that way to feel intimate and real. I mean, TED Talk is very prestigious and beautiful. And I mean, obviously it's like really gorgeous information that comes from those talks. But again, who is going to reach? Like, I really want to reach Black folk. I really want to reach the culture, the real culture. 
and talk and no one's going to listen if it's set up a certain way, a lot of times, like not if you really want to just push the needle forward, you know, no one could take away what she brings to the table, but it's also, you know, as a creator, how do I make a a more creative way out of what she's saying that is so important? On that note, like, do you think that things are changing, let's say in like the past 10 years? I mean, it's such a complicated question because on the one hand, we've had arguably more trans visibility than we have ever had before. And yet it also feels like we are having more anti-trans and specifically Black anti-trans violence than we have ever had before. So I'm curious, like within the, as you're saying, you really want to speak directly to the Black community. Like, do you see positive signs of change with regard to the question of transgender life and existence in the Black community? Yes, absolutely. I'm absolutely full of optimism and excitement. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to progress. We're going to evolve. We're evolving. And that's why we're getting so much pushback because people are getting pulled out of their comfort zone, right? As humans, you know, and things that we were taught as children, like it's very hard to undo those things, you know, to unlearn those things and unsee those things. It's very difficult. And I've learned to not be angry at people because of their ignorance, it's, which is also hard to do because it's not their fault. It's like a KKK member who I would be very interested in doing a documentary with as well. But, you know, some of the things that come out of white supremacist mouth, it only leaves you speechless because of the ignorance and also the extremism of it. Right. But they learned that from somewhere. And it's so it all leads to trauma, no matter what color we are, it's all led to trauma and just being neglected emotionally, you know, and uh, abused emotionally a lot of times. So I think that it's not going to happen overnight. We may not even benefit from all the work that we're putting and we're pioneering for, but it's going to make the lives of other queer and trans people and Black people a lot easier when we can understand a lot of each other's issues with one another. And again, it's all taught from children. And uh, it's just a matter of undoing those lessons. Yeah. And so much of it too, like you're saying, is about fear. And it turns like a potential allyship, particularly between Black cis women and Black transgender women who, I mean, that's what I took away also from Daniela's interviews and Dominique's too, that it's like there is the opportunity for allyship there that feels like because there's so much fear and also the way that society polices Black bodies, polices women's bodies, like there's a blockage to kind of forging that allyship. But perhaps, I mean, I guess the hope would be that films like Kokomo City, by addressing the actual issue instead of like talking around it, you can make headway there. It's appealing. It's like, I mean, back in the day when reality shows hit the scene, people were obsessed with it because they... We're obsessed with with the truth, but we're also obsessed with how the truth is being told. Like there's different ways to tell the truth, but at the end of the day, the truth needs to be told. And it's very underwhelming and it's hard to sell an underwhelming story or a messenger, right? So I'm going to get girls that could captivate and draw people in. Like, for example, Leah at the beginning, her story have never been told. A trans story had never been told that way. That was really intense. And it was almost crazy <laughs> that she was in that situation, but it was the truth. And there was things that she probably shouldn't have done, but she did them due to something that he did or something that she experienced or he's doing it because of something he was experiencing. This is the truth. And people like any movie, you're going to be obsessed and drawn to, oh my God, what's going to happen next? But it doesn't matter how you tell the story. 
or who tells the story as long as it is being told. So there needed to be some type of entertainment component to this music component to keep people, you know, engaged, but they're being informed at the same time without the women at the same time compromising their integrity, like they're speaking and just being themselves as comfortable as they want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I was also interested in the the men that you interview because hearing their side of it and how they identify is very interesting. So there's, just to set it up for the audience a little bit, there are a number of male subjects in the film who offer the kind of perspective of Black men who love trans women, are trans attracted is another term that they will use. But the way that they identify is kind of all over the spectrum. There's some like exotommy, for example, who identifies as gay, but there are others that just identify as being attracted to trans women or interested or kind of open to the possibility of. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like interviewing those guys who also discuss the difficulty of talking about this, right? And the fact that it's like they can talk to you in a weird way publicly on film, but have difficulty talking to their best friends about it, for example. Wow. No, I'd never even thought about it that way. But adding the guys was just a part of the truth telling, right? It's again, is that how that messenger look is just what the messenger is saying and how the messenger is positioned in the film where it doesn't feel condescending or preachy or dated or, oh God, just, it needed to have a swagger, right? And these guys had plenty of swagger and it was approachable. People could relate to it. They understand the lingo, the dialect and the body language. All of that was very needed because we always see trans women's stories being told by trans women, trans women are involved with men. We're just not involved with each other. So it's like, that's always been missing in our documentaries or films or whatnot. But, but I thought what was most important is that these men were filmed not running out of a hotel room or not denying meeting this trans woman online. Yeah, yeah, it's on the shade room gagging because, you know, his face is on the shade room like a mugshot. It's none of that. It's just very like dignifying, mature, sexy, authoritative, and just like owning who they are. But just like you said, it's all up and down the spectrum of who they are as men. Some of them may not be attracted to trans women. You know, most of the guys, except one, I think have kids. Tommy have kids. Lo has Like they're all into women. They have children. And but they also shouldn't feel, you know, censored to say, you know, I think trans women are cool, even if it's not sexual. I just think trans women are cool. I've never been with any of those guys, but we've always been friends. I have a lot of guy friends. So that's another reality. It's like people are not used to seeing men just say, that's my homie, you know? So I think that added a great deal of importance to the film. And it gets at the idea, you know, the kind of like the activist truism that if we liberate Black trans women, we actually liberate like almost everybody else. One of my favorites was, I forget exactly who was talking about it, but she was describing how it's like, it's actually the trade, right? Like the roughest of trade, the butchest guy. Oh, Coco. Coco, yeah. That she's like, he wants like a big dicked like tranny. Like that's what he wants. And if we were in a world where that existence was validated and honored and understood and accepted, that person wouldn't have to feel like scared about revealing this desire that they have, which is a perfectly normal desire. Yeah, it's normal. It is normal. But the problem is when the transgender kind of like movement hit like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 
there are talking points that really, I think, scared people to going back in like stepping away from being curious of trans women, because it's like we got to get the awkward, uncomfortable stuff out of the way. People want to know what happens sexually with trans people. But if we're making a fucking big deal about it, how is it going to be normal if we can't talk about it as normal human beings? So the process starts now. It starts now. Whether it's Kokomo City or whether it's whoever's telling the story, we have to get over it. It's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of us that are not secure with who we are and what we have, or even for the men. But for it to become normalized and also humanized, we have to talk about it. We have to accept it. And people have to deal with it. And it's got to be scrutinized and all the things. Get it out of the way. It's like going to the doctor to get a shot. You know it's going to hurt. You know it's going to be a big, got to prepare for it. We have to do that as the queer community, not just trans people. We have to say, this is what men are attracted to. This is what some women are attracted to. Some women are attracted to trans women. So everyone is out to do whatever they want to do. And as long as you're not hurting anyone or being disrespectful, we're all human and we're just trying to find love and respect. Yeah, I totally agree. And that keeping things in the dark is the surest way to make things dangerous and like violent and awful. It is. No one can heal from that. Like, how can a man, a heterosexual man, say he's attracted to a trans woman that still have her male genitals? How could he feel comfortable and confident when the world around him, that's all they want to know and to scrutinize that or to make fun of that? How is he going to be confident as a man to say, this is what I like, regardless to what the trans woman has? Like, we got to take those first steps. It's not going to be easy, but we have to do it. So one of the the things as we kind of wrap up here that I wanted to ask you about is a number of the women in the film talk about wanting to get out of a life of sex work, which I should also emphasize, they do not have any shame about it. It is a reality of life for a number of them. I think Danielle is the one that uses the term survivalist, right? This is like how one survives. But, you know, as they want to get out of this life and do something else, you know, they have so many varied interests and things that they could do, but they don't see a place in the world where they can make similar money to kind of support themselves. And in the case of several of them, support family members. How can we change that? Like, how can we, what are the things that we need to do? Big questions, not easy. As like a culture, as a society to like make those opportunities possible. I mean, this is probably a bad comparison or a bad analogy, but I think people understand what I'm saying. If a prisoner that's been in prison in the jail system for 20 years and he went in when he was 20, so he's 40 years old or 30 something, For him to come and be effective in society, he has, in my opinion, should go through some sort of mental transition as well, some type of prep, some type of prep to be leashed out into the world. So when trans women transition, we're not taught how to be women mentally. We're not. And so a lot of the times it's just it's just bullshit. A lot of times we're just going by what we see on television or going by what we think, you know, a man likes, but what's, how do we truly function as women to be a part of society and work and be a healthy minded employee or a manager or a business owner? How do we realistically coincide with uh, our fellow construction workers or our TV programmers? Like how do trans women really cope with that? Because It's an emotional imbalance that trans women don't face or don't heal from. I think as you're taking hormones, you have to also 
deal with the mental and emotional aspect of changing your identity. You have to. And it doesn't mean like erasing who you are. It's just how do you communicate? How do you survive in a world like everyone else if you want to be treated like a regular citizen or a normal citizen? But to me right there, like, again, it's not easy, but we need programs where it doesn't feel like a rehab or it doesn't feel like something's wrong with trans women. It needs to just be like a warm expected thing to do. And, you know, it's just not about the physical thing, getting boobs and hips and long hair and thinking that that is very, it's a very unstable state of mind that trans women live in, in this day and age is very, it's very alarming to me, but I, I would like to see facilities and programs created to help young trans women in particular, not to be inspired just naturally to be sex workers because, you know, that's what all the girls have done since the 80s and the 70s. And we're in a different age where we have to protect and we have to we have to make up our minds as trans women. What do we want to say? What are we asking for? What are we asking for? What do we want as a community? And we have to lead that march as as trans women, especially for the younger generation, or we're not going to evolve. That was beautifully put. I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dee Smith, director, most recently, of the film Kokomo City. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been listening to Eric Newman's conversation with filmmaker Dee Smith about her documentary, Kokomo City. We now turn to my conversation with Claire Simon, director of Our Body. I'm happy to be speaking with the filmmaker Claire Simon today. Simon's career spans nearly five decades in which she has made almost 30 films, both documentaries and fiction. In 2008, her film God's Office, a work of realist fiction, received the SACD Prize at the Cannes Film Festival Directors Fortnight, and in 2016, she won the award for Best Documentary at the Venice International Film Festival for her film The Competition, which is a brilliant keyhole into the entrance exams of Paris's most prestigious film school, La Famille, where Simon formerly taught. Other recent works include her 2021 film, I Want to Talk About Duras, and the docu-series Le Village, which lasted two seasons on French television. She joins me to speak about her latest film, Our Body, which premiered at the Berlinale Forum this year and is starting its U.S. run at Film Forum in New York City this week. The film is shot entirely in the gynecology unit of a public hospital in Paris. Simon shows the many patients within at every stage of life. They manage unexpected pregnancies, transitioning genders, endometriosis, infertility, breast and reproductive cancer, birth and death. Simon began the project after learning her longtime producer had spent two years in the same hospital recovering from cancer. And during its filming, she became a breast cancer patient there herself. But no one patient in this case is more unique than the other. Each has their own story, which the doctors who serve them, often with unimaginable care and respect, become a part of. The film lends itself to looking at individual bodies as part of a bigger organism, both within the hospital and society at large, and it gently questions the limits of autonomy, the power differential between doctors and patients, the hopes we have for our futures, and the fears and comfort we find when facing our ends. It's such a moving film, Claire, and I want to thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you. I wanted to start, you know, in the first moments of the film, you say that it was inspired by your producer having spent time there. And you also mentioned that your father had spent 28 years of his life in a hospital. And you kind of reference your apprehension about hospitals, that you could almost catch a disease just being in there. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, your experience of hospitals before this movie, the feelings you had for them, and then maybe how that shifted once you began to film. Yeah, my father, when I was uh, like uh, 10, he... He went into the hospital without uh, going out. Well, he went out for moments, but he stayed in the hospital, yeah, for 28 years. And so that was the idea that I I knew about hospitals because I was going to see him very often and everything. So it's not that it was uh, something, you know, because some people have are afraid of hospitals, you know, they never go there or they prefer not to go and all these things. I knew very well about hospital and doctors and nurses and all this stuff. So it was not this kind of fear that I had. And I want, and it's very funny also that uh, between my home, my place and this hospital, I have to cross the cemetery. And I thought it was unbelievable in this cemetery in which my father has been um, incinerated. So it was a a very strong sort of topographic story. And it's true, that's what I'm saying at the beginning of the film, that I had this thought very quick when I first went to that hospital. I thought, oh, I hope I'm not going to catch cancer, as you could catch it as a cold or something like that, you know. And then I was taken by all these people that I, all these women that I wanted to film and that I met. And my idea from the first beginning of this film was the stages on the path of life. And I wanted to show this uh, sort of large arc of mainly women's life, but it's also transgender people in transition, so it's not only cis women. Because I felt like it's told in Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex that we are all individuals, but women have to live with this gynecological life, which is very, it's, it's wonderful, but it's a burden on the other hand. It's, uh, and so that uh, when you see... Uh, like men between 17 and 70 years old, they don't think about their physical problems of uh, anyway, uh, sex. And so I wanted to show that because I strongly believe in cinema and I strongly believe that, especially with the body, when you see the things, when you see the body, it changes your point of view. When you because you understand suddenly what is, and I was so amazed when I filmed, like when I filmed surgery, it was uh, fabulous because I was very afraid of filming surgery. And on the other hand, 
I was amazed that, well, the inside of the body is a real mess. You don't understand anything because it doesn't go with the drawings that you've done when you were a student at school. But suddenly you see what it is, what is endometriosis, what is giving birth, a C-section and things like that. And it's very, very, for me, it was very strong, very important. The scene where you go where suddenly, you know, it comes deep into the film. So suddenly we see you with the doctor getting your diagnosis and it's, it's very shocking. And you, so you're learning, you know, for some people could be the worst news possible, but you say that you are so grateful that you are hearing the news, having already been in the hospital, having been filming that it, it's easier to hear almost having spent so much time there. And I wonder if getting that acquainted with the body And with all these other patients is part of what helped you in that case. Of course. It was the fact that uh, I knew I had seen other women. I had seen what they had gone through, what I understood. And I knew also the different stages they were going through. More or less, I felt that it was uh, quite well looked after breast cancer and that uh, you wouldn't die of it. There is a a viewer who had told me, it's very strange, you're very concerned by the fact that they're going to cut your breast, but you're not concerned about dying. And it's true (laughs) that I was only concerned about that because I was sure I was going to get cured. I was really optimistic, too much probably, because I had filmed. And uh, it's very important, this, the fact, and I hope that the film has this, can give to other women the possibility to see the different steps in life that they have gone through or they fear to go through, and then they understand what it is all about. And to see the other women's body and how you, the discussion with the doctors and the different, I feel that uh, it can be a help. And also, I think seeing people so vulnerable is just really powerful, you know, that everyone in almost every scene, I I was crying throughout the film, but I think it's something about seeing people in this state where um, they're just being, you know, they're, they're hopeful, they're scared, they're everything, but they're so, there's so much emotion there. And I wonder if people were resistant to being filmed, if they wanted to be, if they felt they were participating in a larger project that was important, like how was that to get people to agree? Well, not everybody agreed, of course, really. But the people I filmed and more than those that you see in the film were, I think they realized really that uh, being filmed was a, a sort of testimony of their own experience and that they felt that it was uh, good for other women, for like their sister, their aunt, their cousin, their friends. And and also, like, I take this example because it was very strong for me to film this woman from Senegal who is pregnant and it's her fourth child. And the questioning goes on. And suddenly it's a midwife who is doing the consultation and she asks, are you circumcised? And she says, yes. And suddenly... I saw everything backwards, that her husband is 30 years older than her 
And then I thought, oh my God, this is so strong, so terrible. She said yes immediately to be filmed. And I thought that she felt, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that she felt that was an occasion to say that to the rest of the world. I was really struck by the doctors and the lack of judgment that I perceived that they were, there was seemed to be, you know, that's kind of a classic thing in women's healthcare from a feminist standpoint, but it's not always the case. And often there's, especially anything around sex, there can be a lot of judgment. And I wondered, you know, in the U.S., if you were an American filmmaker making this movie, this would be instantly a political film. It would not be about people's personal stories. You know, early on, you deal with a teenager about to have an abortion. There's a number of people transitioning, a teenager early on in the film. So I think that those things would be seen as inciting, you know, as opposed to just people's personal stories. And I'm wondering how those decisions are viewed in France and also what the reaction to the film has been in France. Well, it's not released yet. It is uh, Ah. first released in the States before France. But uh, yes, uh, it is political, of course. We were a crew of three girls. I was with two, uh, a young girl who was my assistant, a former student, and a young girl who was doing the sound. And it was only possible that way. It was, of course, impossible if there was a man in the crew. But everyone in the, even when I was shooting in the hospital, I had written a a long letter to everyone to explain my point of view, my idea, and they were really positive about it. Yes, in France, I think uh, all the feminist movements uh, will be uh, positive. Of course, this hospital has been, uh, it's complicated because there was a doctor who was sued because he had he was violent and uh, but that's why I show the protest I think it's a more it's not a, a film that is trying to put up political discussions it's wider I hope this is my idea is really to describe the path of the patients and you never see about me you never see twice patient. You never follow, you have a glimpse of her story in the consultation, but you don't follow the stories because it's a sort of huge one female body from the beginning to the end. I don't like to say that as a value, but it's a bit wider than only discussions about very precise discussions. I tried to make a a portrait of I was wondering in France, this hospital, if you could just talk a little bit about healthcare, how healthcare works. Like, this is a public hospital. Could anyone walk in and receive care there? Yeah. Um, And it's all free. It's all free. It's all free. But we have a lot of problems with hospitals, especially uh, because of the lockdown and everything. So, Sometimes you have to wait for a long time to get an appointment and everything, but it's all free, yes. 
And uh, the idea is to, uh, like you have what I think is uh, amazing, and maybe it's the same in the States, but the, the meetings of the doctors, with all the doctors discussing, and all different, the, the radiotherapists, the people from cancer, the surgeons, they all discuss each case. And you can never decide what's going to happen to a patient before that discussion. And which is very, very strong, I think, because then all the the doctors, they are all discussing all the time and it's really amazing. And I remember once, I didn't keep it in the film, when a, a surgeon was very concerned by a, an operation, he didn't know really what to do and everything. And he said, beside that, it's complicated because this woman is in a homeless So you see, it was a very huge operation. And they wanted to manage that she would stay at least two weeks in the hospital. She was in the street. You see, this is amazing, I think. Sometimes at the beginning of the shooting, I was coming in the hospital and I was thinking, my God, this is it's sort of a place where Social separations are not working. You go out in the street, it's awful, and then you get in the hospital and you feel this is everyone has a right to live. And this is very, very strong. I mean, I seem to give a sort of idealistic point of view, but that was my, my feeling. And even as a patient, I felt that. Yeah, I think, you know, we're used to in some ways seeing doctors as people who can make a lot of difference, but also about people who have complexes and believe they're gods and get off on their power to decide people's fates. And I was surprised at at how few doctors seem to act like that in the film. I felt like there were maybe like a couple instances where I got the sense of people not being as thoughtful. Of course, both the people that I noticed that were like that were men, but in terms of the real attention to people, their lives, trying to help them, I was surprised. And I, I wondered almost if, if you had encountered more of a, the other behavior and just not included it. I would have been very happy to have very bad behaviors, but I didn't <laughs> get them. Uh, I thought that, well, there is a doctor that with whom I don't uh, agree completely in what he says in the film, especially this thing that is always uh, saying to young girls, you have to preserve your fertility, you have as if they really have to have children. And if they don't want, they're free. I mean, who is going to decide for them? This, I thought, was uh, quite tough. But um, it's true that after a while, I was very happy with uh, women doctors. And I thought they were not at all building their own uh, statue of uh, being a a great doctor, they were completely connected to the patient and to understand what was going on and explaining. And the other thing which is strong is that in certain cases, very, maybe it's not uh, correct to say that, but some people who are from low class, they are very shy towards doctors because they think, uh, I didn't do these studies, they must know better than I do. And so they don't dare to ask some questions, which you can see in my consultation, I do dare. 
to ask questions because I'm the filmmaker. I don't know. I'm not afraid of the doctors. And uh, this was very strong. I felt it quite a few times. Like you were saying before, this as the hospital of this place of being kind of outside of normal, you know, societal class problems. At the same time, I did have a sense of it as being this place of where the personal, you know, kind of meets the public of being somehow an arm of the the people, but also of the state. And that's really where they come together. And I was just curious how much you got a sense of, especially with fertility issues or with transitioning issues of what people want to do with their bodies and what they're allowed to do. That there are some rules about, for instance, for gender transition, it sounded like you couldn't start hormones until you're 18 in France or for IVF, there must be, you know, there's like a council that meets and decides, okay, can these people move forward with this IVF treatment? Where in the States, you know, because it's all private, it's like whatever you want to pay for, you're allowed to pay for. But It seems like it works differently in France. So I was curious about that sense of like, could people do what they wanted pretty much? Yeah, but it's free. Like uh, you do transition, it's all free. Yes, you have certain rules like uh, you can't have hormones before 18. But uh, like the family planning, what the film begins, it's very free. There are laws like you after, I think it's 10 weeks, of pregnancy, you can't, or maybe it's a little less, maybe it's eight weeks, you can't do the abortive pill. You have to go through surgery. But um, you have these two laws, and I realized in certain meetings of doctors that, like, uh, some patient would say, I will not take radiotherapy, like that. And so they went back and back to the cancer was it went down and then it went up again and everything. But they couldn't do radiotherapy to people who didn't want to do it, like things like that. What is very interesting in that hospital, and it's not in all hospitals, is that all the gynecological is in one unit from youth to old age. It's one unit. It's in different places in the hospital, but it's one unit. And I think it's marvelous. It's really wonderful. But hospitals are lacking of money in France, but it's amazing what they do. I mean, it's really amazing. And it's true that in any public hospital in France, everyone is supposed to be equal. It's supposed to be like that. And it it is more or less. And I remember when I met nurses, they were so committed there were girls, who, women who have been in, in business, uh, you know, in working in banks, and they, suddenly they said, look, this is not life. And they did the studies to be nurses, and they were absolutely happy every day, even if the work was so difficult, it was badly paid and everything, but they felt that they were into life, into important things. You know, I noticed it's filmed during at least some some time in the pandemic. Did the pandemic change that at all for, for this particular hospital? Were people burnt out like the same way in the States? I think lots of nurses changed professions after or couldn't bear to be in hospitals anymore because it was so difficult. Yeah, yeah. It was difficult for some people. Yeah, it was uh, really tough. Yes. 
especially the fact that like for cancer, lots of people haven't been able to be to have surgery and everything during the lockdown. It was really uh, very quite terrible. And not speaking of the of the nurses or who didn't want to get uh, vaccinated. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I was happy with is the mask. I was very happy because I thought all this blue, like that light blue, I thought it was very beautiful. It had a sort of science fiction look and that it gave people a certain anonymous feeling. And on the other side, you could see their eyes. You could see how really how they felt just by their eyes. And I thought it was very strong. I was very happy with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know it's kind of going against what I said in the introduction where, you know, no one story is more important than the other. But I'm wondering if, despite saying that, if there is a patient or two that really sticks out for you of um, something you filmed that just really affected you. Oh, I'm sorry to say that all of them. I love absolutely the woman who gives birth, the first birth, when she welcomes her daughter. I think she is amazing. She is like a great, great person. And I loved also very much the woman who has, who is pregnant and has a cancer. And she's so wonderful, beautiful. And uh, I really loved the last woman. I couldn't believe what she said. It happened to us all the time that we cried when we were shooting. It never happened to me before. (laughs) It was incredible for that, yeah. And also, uh, I remember when I filmed the C-section and uh, suddenly there was this, the inside liquid gets out, like, you know, (laughs) so, so high and... And I thought, oh, my God, it's going to ruin my lens. (laughs) And I thought, okay, I'm ready to go to war now. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Before we end, I'd want to ask you, just because the film ends, you know, on the end of your treatment, and there's this beautiful shot of you in the window looking out and you're reflected and it's very moving. And I just want to see, you know, how you're doing and how your health is now and Checking on that. Thank you. I hope it's okay. <laughs> I feel okay. I feel well. I want to do more films. I'm already shooting another film. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course you are. You're so prolific. Thank you so much, Claire. That was great to talk with you. Thank you. That was Claire Simon. Her latest film is called Our Body. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARP Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.